The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, goal! UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. An in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening as we sit back and talk about our weekly get-together to tell you what's happening between the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. The opening week has come and gone as the teams are ready to begin their second week of the regular season. It was a good one for the Reds, not so good for the Indians, especially on the injury front, and we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But in order to do that, we've got to go down south and talk to our resident Reds expert and movie producer, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? I'm pretty good. Um... Uh, despite the fact I think the Reds are overrated, and I, but I, I frankly am more worried about the Indians right now, but uh, we can get into that later. Well, I will tell you this, that not only are the Indians injured, Mark, but so am I. I did a ball game earlier today, it was a very good one, where the Waynedale girls softball team won 4-1. to one. And you know, Mark, I made it through the entire football season and basketball season without catching a cold, and the first game that we broadcast this afternoon, what happens? I catch a cold. Well, Dave, that's why you have a partner in this business. So if one of us is down, the other guy picks him up. Well, let, let's hope you can do it here tonight because <clears throat> I, I've got a feeling that it's going to be very tough for me to continue to talk here in this one. But nonetheless, hey, you know, you could say that the Reds' record is overrated. They're 4-2 and two on the season heading into tonight's game against the Cubs, Mark, but Still, we talked about how dangerous this April schedule was for the Reds, and they've come out and in the first week played some pretty good baseball. Yeah, I think they've, they've played some good defense, and they've gotten some good starting pitching. But, you know, the, the irony is, Dave, that we've spoken now for the last, really, two or three years about the two weaknesses of this team, one being middle relief and the second being offense. And it is exactly the same thing that we have faced in the first week this year. The Reds won a few games, but in one game they won, they had four hits. If you look at the, the especially at the middle to the bottom of the lineup, Mezzarocco, uh, Jay Bruce, uh, Marlon Bird, uh, Zach Cozart, all these guys are hitting around 100. And, and you cannot win if you had that kind of offensive production. And yesterday, the Reds easily should have won that game. They had a 5-3 to three lead in the eighth inning. But again, middle relief comes in and completely blows the game up, and the Reds lose 7-5 to five in, in 10 innings. And that is a game they should have put in the win column. And you, can't, you cannot win this division when you let games like that get away. So I'm disappointed that in the offseason, the Reds did not do more to to shore up that bullpen that they need shoring up. And they didn't add a, really a productive bat. Marlon Bird, at 36 years old, I, I don't think uh, is going to help the team that much. And uh, it's it's the same thing, you know, it's deja vu all over again. And now six, six games do not make a season. I'm well aware of that. And, I, I, and I'd probably still be saying this if the Reds, hit the ball well, and they pitched well in relief. But they but they didn't, and I don't understand how that is going to change in the immediate future. I, I don't see anything on the horizon that leads me to believe this team is going to pitch any better in middle relief or hit better. Well, and you talk about middle relief, that's been the Cleveland Indians' problem over the first week, especially Saturday when they managed to come back against the tough Detroit Tigers team, a team that I thought would win the American League Central this year. And the Indians were down by five runs, 5 nothing. managed to battle back into the ball game to be down 5-3 to three and then have their middle relievers blow the ball game for them again. And the same thing happened to them on Sunday. You know, a year ago, Mark, one of the hallmarks of the Indians team, actually for the last two years, has been their bullpen. 
And as far as what's going on in the first week alone of this season, the Indians' bullpen has failed them, and that's something that I'm afraid might be something to carry forward because you just cannot continue to go to the well time after time after time like Terry Francona does with this bullpen and expect it to come up aces every single time, Mark, and I'm afraid that this might be one of those seasons. Well, I I think from my perspective, and you know the team better than I, I was I was very upset to hear about Jan Gomes and what happened to him, at least here in the Dayton papers, they said he's going to be out eight to ten weeks, and if that's true, uh, that's going to have a huge impact on that Cleveland team because I know that, I know that he is a major cog offensively and even uh, defensively as well. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you're losing 20 homers, 80-some RBIs that he has contributed over the past couple of years, Mark, and he's a good defensive catcher <laughs> now. I don't think they'll lose a lot as far as defensively with Rodolfo Perez coming in and and uh, taking over the catching duties on a full-time basis. But where they're going to lose something is in the batting box. That's where they're going to lose something, Mark, because you cannot lose a Jan Gomes, and especially with a team that has a lackluster hitting attack as it is and expect to be able to carry on. And Jan Gomes is just one of those. You know, uh, and I... And I Time to time, I, I talk about Matt Underwood and Rick Manning, the Indian announcers, and they wanted to make a big deal on the injury that Jan Gomes had, that it was caused by the runner from Detroit. It was a bases-loaded situation, and Carlos Santana came in at first base on a grounder, picked up the ball, threw it to home to force the play at home, and they wanted to make a big deal about how they felt the injury was caused by the runner from Detroit sliding into Jan Gomes' foot on the base. But if you actually look at the replay, he twisted his knee trying to stretch out to get the throw from Carlos Santana. It had nothing to do with the Detroit player sliding into Jan Gomes. So I just wanted to make that point perfectly clear that the Detroit ball, the Detroit runner had absolutely nothing to do with Gomes' injury. It, it had nothing to do with it. And as far as the Indians are concerned... They have got to really try to overcome this. Eight to ten weeks, I think, Mark, for a sprained ACL. I think that's being generous. If he's back by August 1st, I think I'll be thrilled. Do you think there's any chance that they would put Santana behind the plate again? Well, yesterday he was their backup catcher, an emergency catcher, because they wanted to have another reliever come in. Now, they're supposed to be bringing up a catcher named Brett Hayes, but they've got to make a move on their 40-man roster in order to do that. So that's something that's, you know, they're off today. So that's something that they're probably going to announce tomorrow. I doubt, seriously, if they will use Santana behind the plate unless it's an emergency. I think they'll bring Hayes up and he'll be the backup catcher. Although, like I said yesterday, Santana was slated to be the backup catcher. But I think that's going to only be in an emergency situation, Mark. Well, again, the Indians and the Reds... uh um, you and I picked them, at least we picked the Reds to end up near the end of the of, of the, the bottom of the division. Uh, the Indians, I, I believe I picked them, I know I picked them second, I'm not sure where you picked them, uh, but I know we both picked Detroit first, and it looks to me that Detroit has earned that first that first place pick, even though they lost today. Uh, boy, that when Cabrera hits, that, that Detroit team is tough to beat. You know, every time he sees an Indian, if he, when, when he sees Chief Wahoo, he just goes absolutely bonkers, Mark. I mean, the guy, they, they said he, he's played 150-some games against the Indians in his career, and he's had 36 home runs against us. And he just, whenever he sees an Indian, it, he just goes absolutely crazy. And he looks so comfortable in the batter's box. And he just swings so free and easy. When he plays the Indians, it, it's almost a surprise when he makes an out rather than when he gets a hit. And yesterday he was 4-for-4. Four four. On Saturday I know he was 4-for-5. And, I mean, it, it, he just it, it, it's rare when he makes an out against the Indians. And I, I've gotten to the point, Mark, where I think even if the base is loaded, you, you, you pull about uh, Barry Bonds and just say, I'm going to walk this guy and I'm not going to let him beat me at all. You know, there was, uh, I remember driving up from Cincinnati to Chicago during the season. This was, had to be, 
I don't know, 2006 or 2005, something like that. It was a while ago. And I was listening to WLW, and the Reds had a deal on the table that would have sent Austin Kearns, and I'm, I forget the pitcher. It was, it was a pretty big-name pitcher. And Adam Dunn to the Marlins for Dontrell Willis and Cabrera. And the Reds <laughs> turned it down. Who was the GM at that time? Uh, it couldn't have been Jockety. No, I think it was Allen. Paul Allen. Oh, boy. And I remember, no wonder he was short-lived. Yeah, I, I think he was uh, standing in for someone. And I remember it vividly driving up to Chicago because I was listening, and I, and I wanted to hear if they were going to make the trade because it was somebody had called in and said they, they had heard about this deal in the works and the Reds had a chance for it and, and – at the time, Don Terrell Willis was was you know per- pitching pretty well, and, uh, and and Cabrera was very good, but the Reds had Dunn and Kearns and then another pitcher, so it was it was it sounded at the time like a pretty even deal, uh, but Cabrera went to the moon and Dunn and Kearns fell off the face of the earth. Well, and you've got Victor Martinez that backs him up in the cleanup spot for that Detroit lineup, and then. What helps Detroit is the fact that J.D. Martinez has been such a find for the Tigers playing right field that they were able to give up Torrey Hunter a year ago and put Martinez into that number five spot. What Houston was ever thinking? Well, I'll tell you, Mark, how they gave up this guy. He has really come to Detroit, and I don't know what they did with him or what Houston didn't do with him, but Martinez has really been a godsend to this Tiger team. He He's hitting just as much as Martinez is, and it gives them that 3-4-5 spot in the batting order covered, and they are just a holy terror offensively. And and if they get any kind of relief pitching, Mark, just any kind of relief pitching, I think they're going to run away with this division. Well, they don't even have Verlander yet. You know, and, uh, you know that, that team has, you know, I think you and I both said, well, they've won it three years in a row now. Yes. Okay. You, you know, when a team wins it three years in a row, it's it's like Atlanta was doing that during the '90s, and they won what 13 in a row. You have to you have to say yes to them until they don't win, and then maybe you say no. But until they lose it, they're the team to beat. And uh, right now, I don't think anybody is 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 close to them in terms of uh, you know being competitive in the Central. And, you know, you're right. They have a chance to run away and hide. And it's one of those teams that if they if they do get the pitching this year with that offense, uh, this team could win 110 to 115 games. Well, what I'm concerned about as far as the Indians are concerned, Mark, and I, and I know it's the first week of the season, and I understand this, but when they put together their roster, boy, they put it together looking to have 13 pitchers. And they sent down Sean Markham and Adams to Columbus, along with Jerry Sands and Jesus Aguilar. And you recall, I was very upset about the fact that they sent Aguilar and Lindor down to the minor leagues. Now, what concerns me throughout the first week of the season, Mark, is the fact that they've already revamped their roster and basically admitting that they made mistakes as far as who they sent down to the minors. They brought up Sean Markham yesterday. Sean Markham came in in the ball game against the Tigers. He struck out four and walked three, giving up just three hits. One was a solo homer in five innings against the Tigers as they had to pull T.J. House out of the game. So they brought him up, and he pitches pretty well. They bring up Jerry Sands, whom, by the way, is almost related to me. My son's wife's sister's husband is the first cousin to Jerry Sands. Yeah, Dave, I think you and I are probably closer related than that. <laughs> Nonetheless, Jerry Sands comes up, and he's hitting four forty-four over two games with four RBIs since his call-up on Saturday. There's another player that they should have had on this roster. They brought up Adams. He pitched pretty well. But the problem, Mark, is that the way they constructed this roster to start out the season, it just didn't fit, and now... 
as I said, when when you and I got into this argument a couple of weeks ago over Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, his range at shortstop is atrocious. Now, is he a, is he a steady fielder? Yes. But his range extends to about two steps to his right, maybe three steps to his left. And anything outside of that, he just is not going to get to. And that was one of the reasons that I was saying, you know, you you got to you got to get yourself a defensive shortstop. Yes, Ramirez is going to make the plays that he gets to, but he doesn't get to the balls that he needs to get to in order for this team to win consistently. What's he hitting? Uh, he's hitting about 240 right now. Okay. He does have a home run. Well, I think, you know, in today's age, if you have a team like Detroit, as an example, you could have a 240, 230, 220 hitting shortstop if they're a great fielder, and he's worth his weight in gold because, you know, he's, he's going to shore up a defense that doesn't need the the offensive production from a, a weak-hitting shortstop. But I think in, in most teams, uh, a shortstop hitting that today is not going to get the job done. So Yeah, and he just doesn't have the range, Mark. He doesn't even have the range. I mean, Zach Cozart's got good range. He doesn't have anywhere near the range that Zach Cozart has. Well, Zach Cozart, I thought, should have won the Golden Glove last year. I mean, if he'd have hit anything, he probably would have. I don't, I don't know why they, you know, they, they say hitting doesn't impact the Golden Glove awards. It sure does. Right. Uh, it does, though, and he, I thought he had played as good a shortstop. I think he made three errors last year, Zach Cozart, and he had great range. It wasn't a guy who just, you know, fielded balls hit right at him. He, he had good range, uh, better than good. But uh, anyway, you know, I think the Indians, in terms of their uh, the first half, I, I think the challenge is going to be to get through the first half and, and, and be there you know, for that wild card spot, because frankly, I don't see them right now, with, especially with the loss of Gomes, uh, I don't see them even near Detroit, unless you see something I don't see. Oh, I don't, I don't <coughs> see it. And, and the thing about it is, Mark, let's switch over to Cincinnati right now. Um, if they can get past the first month, I think the Reds have got a pretty good shot, because, you know, I, you think they're overrated, but I've watched them play every game this year so far, too, and I've got to tell you, I'm... I'm impressed with what's going on at the top of their order with their first three in Hamilton, Votto, and Frazier. I think those three have really done a great job in the first week of the year. Oh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the, the problem is you've got six other guys behind them, and collectively those six guys are hitting about 110. And I'm not exaggerating. And you cannot win that way. And when you have Brandon Phillips hitting 120, you've got – uh, Bird hitting 100, Bruce hitting one, you know, 150, 160, Cozart hitting 130, uh, and even Mezzarocco has only two hits. I think he's hitting 100. So, you know, obviously they're going to get better. Uh, you know, that's you can't, you know, make a conclusion or come to a conclusion after a week. But uh, if 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 Frazier and Vado were to drop off at all. And if they had not performed, I mean, Votto has, what, eight RBIs already. Uh, if he hadn't done that, if Frazier hadn't, I think he has seven or eight RBIs also. If they hadn't done that, this team would have lost all six games. So they're, they're hanging on, and I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But what becomes, what you suspect in April sometimes becomes reality in May. And my suspicion is this team is not going to hit enough to stay competitive in the first half of the season, and that's what scares me. Because if they're not competitive in the first half, that they're seven, eight games out, I, I know you're going to see Cueto gone, uh, but you might even see uh, Chapman gone. Now, what could they get back for those two guys? Well, probably a lot. But right now, I, you said you saw the first... Uh, five games for the Reds or six games for the Reds. Chapman, right now, and he may come in and get lit up tonight, he is the most unhittable pitcher I have seen <laughs> since Randy Johnson and, and maybe even more than Randy Johnson. People are not even fouling him off. And guys, these major league players, to me, they look afraid to go in there. And uh, I, I heard uh, Marty Brenneman talking the other night 
with, with Jeff Brantley talking about Chapman. And they said they, they were in the clubhouse watching him walk around. And the guy looks like a, you know, a weightlifter. They said he has the most chiseled, unbelievable physique on the team that they've ever seen in a major league clubhouse. By the way, they, now this is, this could be rumor. He's hit the longest ball ever at Great American Ballpark. He hit a ball over in batting practice, hit it over the sunroof or, you know, the sun deck or moon deck. Wow. And that gets better. He's also a Golden Gloves champion. And they said he can, he can stay up with Billy, uh, Billy Hamilton. He's as fast as Hamilton. That if he were ever to get a sore arm, the guy could come back as a as a player and play every day. He's that good. He's that good an athlete. <clears throat> wow. Well, I do know there was a Bleacher Report article that came out last week, and I wanted to bring this up and bring it to your attention. That it was some of the rumored trades, and if if teams were out of it by the all by the All Star break, which is what we're discussing right now, and one of the trades that they talked about was Cueto going to the Dodgers and Chapman going to Washington. Well, both those organizations have a lot to give back. That's the good thing. And they're out of the Reds' division, which is another good thing. Now, you, you better get a heck of a lot back for those guys because you're giving away the franchise. And you, you've got to get guys major league ready who can come in and contribute immediately. Now, I don't know enough about either organization to know the details but they do have enough talent stored up that I think the Reds could, could do very well. But, you know, I, I would be okay with them trading Cueto. I would hate to have them trade Chapman. He, he is a once-in-a-lifetime and maybe once-in-a-hundred-year in a, in a player. And that guy, he, he creates so much excitement at uh, Great American Ballpark. I think the fans would be just devastated if, if he were to be traded away. I think most fans realize they can't afford uh, Cueto. It's, you know, end of story. You just can't afford him. The question is, when do you trade him? And if this team is going to hit collectively, you know, 150 for the rest of the year, uh, you better trade him sooner than later because you can get something for him now, but every week and month that goes by, you're going to get less in return because, you know, player teams, unless they can sign Cueto, uh, they're not going to give up the farm for uh, for a rental player. Right. Now, the interesting thing about it, Mark, was that Washington was going to give up one of the top prospects, and I don't recall his name, but it was their number five prospect, and he is a shortstop slash second baseman, which immediately led me to think, well, then where is Brandon Phillips going? Well, if he's a shortstop, you could say, where is Zach, Gosa, Zach Cozart going? Uh, I, I, you know, you and I have said it for a long time. Uh, I, I think the Reds made a mistake. This year, I wouldn't have traded for or signed Marlon Bird. I would have put Todd Frazier in left field. I've said it for three years. He is he's the he's the best left fielder they have. He's got a good arm. Uh, he, he hits like a left fielder, and you can get a third baseman to come in there. And I, I might even put Negron at third base. Uh, you know, he, he's gonna he's a he's a good solid hitter, much much better than uh, uh, Zach Cozart. So the Reds have some have some options in on their roster on the team right now. They've just signed Frazier to a four year deal. He's going to be around a while, so they, they have some things they they have to do. But uh, this season could be over very very quickly, David. If the Reds fall into a, a funk uh, come May and they're again seven eight games out, uh, this team is going to change dramatically in the last two-thirds of the season. Well, you talk about a funk. Uh, and I wanted to bring this up with you tonight also. <clears throat> Is it my vision, or am I seeing Brandon Phillips just does not seem to be engaged in playing baseball throughout the first week of the season? Well, I've watched him a lot over the last eight years, and I'm a big Brandon Phillips fan. Uh, his defense is great as ever. I think he was a, probably a little peeved that he was hitting seventh, and I think he's hitting seventh again tonight. But he, you know, he's had three or four chances to drive in big runs. He hit fourth yesterday. 
Uh, I don't know, where, frankly, where he's hitting tonight. I think he's hitting fourth tonight. Okay. Well, he's going to get his chance. And if he was peeved over that, then he's a punk. If he's sitting seventh and doesn't like it, grow up. Uh, you, you, you go where you're, you're told to go. There's a reason behind it. The manager wouldn't make the decision unless there was uh, a reason. And that's the kind of thing that will really tick off your teammates if they think you're you're sulking because of where you're hitting in the lineup. And I don't think he would do that. I really don't. I think he's, he's the guy who wants to win. But, you know, yesterday uh, he really messed up a, a chance to win that ball game by not getting a bunt down in the eighth. Right. You know, first and second, nobody out, and he strikes out trying to bunt. So he's got nobody to blame but himself if he's in a funk right now. Well, and I, I saw one of the games last week where he did commit an error at second base, and it's not an error that he usually would commit. But then later on in the week, I saw him make one of the best plays I've seen a second baseman make, and you and I discussed it later last week, uh, where he went back on a short pop fly in right field, braced with his right leg to stop and catch the the pop fly, and his leg slipped out from underneath him. He fell right on his derriere and then dove to his left from his butt and caught the pop fly. Now, as in, as unengaged as he has looked, then he turns around and he makes a play like that. So really, you cannot really gauge where Brandon Phillips is coming from, although, Mark, you got to remember, he's had this reputation where if things don't go exactly the way he thinks they should go, he does pout. Dave, I, I, like I said, he, he came here, what, in 2006? Right. Okay, well, that's his ninth year here, and I've not seen that. Honest to God, I've not seen him act out that way. Uh, the only thing I saw him do, which was not professional, was he complained because his contract wasn't as big as Joey Votto's. And he right. made some stink about that, which was ludicrous. What's he making, $10 million a year? And he was complaining about it. So that I didn't like. But aside from that, uh, you know, I think he's done a lot for this organization. And I, I maintain he's the best defensive second baseman I have ever seen. But I've seen him more than I've seen everybody else. So that's that probably is prejudice. But he, what makes him so great is he's got a shortstop arm playing second base. So when he gets to a ball behind the bag or deep in, in right field, he goes down to get a ball, he's got a cannon. I mean, the guy's got a real good arm. And he makes plays that nobody else is physically capable of making. And the other thing I like about Phillips this year, he lost 15, 16 pounds over the winter because he knew he was slowing down and he wanted to maintain his flexibility and, and, and you know get, get a little more lithe at second base. So, you know, so far, he's off to a slow start offensively, but I've not seen a major attitude issue with him, although you never know what a guy's thinking. No, and, and, and I understand that he has not been a problem for the Reds throughout the past several years, but since the Votto contract, and then he had the, the little mental blow-up, I guess you could call it. I wouldn't quite call it a blow-up, but I guess for lack of a better term, you've you probably could. Um, he he's had moments where you kind of wonder where his head's at, and really, in my opinion, in the first six or seven games that the Reds have played this year, Mark, he just has seemed disengaged in certain aspects of the game, especially at the plate. I think you're right. I think he was, or I I think maybe you could be right that he was upset about hitting seventh this year. I know certainly, you know, he's a year away from uh, driving in. 100 runs batting cleanup. And now he's all of a sudden batting seventh on a team that really hasn't improved their hitting, Mark. I mean, you really have to sit back, and, and if you're him, you have to wonder why. Yeah, they put Frazier hitting third, and uh, they put Mizoraco hitting fourth. Mizoraco hasn't played. This is the second game he's been sitting out, uh, and he's not hitting. And I think he's hitting, what, two for 25 or something like that. Yeah, and he just doesn't look comfortable at the plate. Yeah, he's lunging at the, at the ball. I mean, he really is is jumping into the pitch, and that's not what he was doing last year. And it could be the pressure of hitting fourth. You know, you know the season started last year. He was hitting sixth and seventh. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, in 2014, he started it off. I think he was hitting 
440 or something going into June, just crushing the ball, and had a terrific season last year. So uh, maybe that that number four hole pressure is something he couldn't you know live up to, but I think overall the Reds have more problems than Mezzarocco, and he's certainly among the things they have to be concerned about. But they they just can't manufacture runs, and that that's the, the very frustrating thing if you're a Reds fan. Well, and you know what's interesting, Mark, is that was the same problem that Carlos Santana had a couple of years ago, and even into last year when they put him in the fourth hole uh, permanently, so-called permanently, he just had a tough time. Now, this year he seems to be used to it, understands the pressure, understands what he has to do, and and has cut down his swing when it comes to a two-strike situation. And I think it is something, Mark, when you, you back clean up for a major league team, you can't just plunge into it. It's something that you've got to be eased into, and maybe that is the problem that Mesoraco's having right now. Yeah, it could be. And, you know, some guys just, it doesn't matter where they hit. Like Barry Larkin, it didn't matter where Barry Larkin hit. He could hit anywhere. He hit fourth, he hit third, he hit second, he let off. And, and the reason it didn't matter is that he puts the ball in play. He, he just makes contact. And if you're a contact hitter, uh, you can hit anywhere. It's where you're a big swing guy, and if you're, you, you, you're trying to drive in runs, that's always the kiss of death. When you try to drive in runs, you, you just have to put the bat on the ball, get it in play, and you will drive in runs. Mark, this year the Reds, of course, are hosting the All-Star Game uh, at Great American Ballpark. And in honor of that, I guess one of the radio stations down in Cincinnati decided to put forward a vote as to who the most influential Cincinnati Reds ball player is. And I understand they've gotten it down to the Final Four. And you and I kind of went over our, our influential ball players. And quite honestly, I don't think there's a doubt who that would be. Well, I think the most, the guy who has epitomized Cincinnati baseball is Pete Rose. And I don't think anybody else is close. Uh, you know, you had, and, but I think they did a smart thing. They started adding objective criteria to that selection process. So, you know, somebody could look at a player who is a very, very good player, maybe even a great player for the Reds, but he didn't say win the MVP. Or he did not. Uh, he did not play in a championship team, or he wasn't a Golden Glove guy, or whatever. They, they had very specific criteria. Or he's, or he's not in the Hall of Fame, or the Reds Hall of Fame. So when you break it down, who's won an MVP? Well, Pete did. He won, I think he won at least one. And he was on a championship team. He was. He should be in the Reds Hall of Fame. He should be in the National Hall of Fame. He's, he was the great. He had more hits than anybody else. He's got the pedigree to do that. Uh, Johnny Bench, I think he's number number two. He has all the above: MVP, Hall of Fame for the Reds, Hall of, National Hall of Fame, Most Valuable Player, and then the, the list gets a little trickier. You have Joe Morgan, who won two MVPs, and uh, the, the big question mark was Tony Perez. Tony Perez arguably was as valuable to the team as a player as anybody who's ever played for the Reds. Mr. Clutch, what, 1,700 RBI, something like that? The old saying was, if a game goes long enough, Tony Perez will find out a way to win it. Yet, he played on a world championship team, but he was never MVP. He never won a golden glove, a golden, I mean, a, uh, a gold glove, uh, he was never a silver slugger, uh, never led the league in hitting. Not He is in the Hall of Fame. So he had some things, and he didn't have other things. So in terms of the Reds selecting their their, their favorite player or their most influential f- player, uh, I, I like the fact that they have some objective criteria because it makes it more than just an opinion between fans. And you know the thing about Tony Perez is, they traded him after that 76 World Championship season and inserted Danny Dreesen at first base, and the Reds never won the division after that. Well, they, they did win it in 79. Remember the Pirates beat them in the playoffs. 
But, you know, Tony Perez, that, that's the deal um, that everybody wished the Reds hadn't made. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, Danny Driesen could have played out left field. And, of course, George Foster was out there at the time. But they could have found room for Tony Perez but or for uh, Danny Driesen. But Tony brought more than RBIs. He brought leadership, and uh, he was a guy you, you could depend on. And uh, the Reds were never the same. And, you know, you talk about Reds' history and, and things that all the great things that organization has accomplished. I think one of the worst things I ever heard was when Tony Perez was fired after being a manager for the Reds after 44 games. And to me, that was the, the worst thing that organization ever did, ever did, and everybody blamed Jim Bowden for that. And it, it wasn't his fault. It was Marge Schott. She's the one who wanted him fired. And Bowden took the fall for it, but uh, it was not him. It, it, was, it was Marge Schott, and uh, Tony Perez really got screwed after all he did for this organization to have that humiliation. And you know he never got another chance. No. You know, uh, Lance McAllister, on his radio show last week, was talking about Marge Schott. And, Mark, when you you think about Marge Schott, I know she was a bad owner. Her heart was in a good place, but she was a bad owner. And there were things, Mark, that when you look back and, and you think about what the things that she did... You just have to sit back and laugh and shake your head and wonder what in the world was going through that woman's mind. And was she actually going to the dog that was always next to her and asking that dog for advice on how to run the team? Well, I met Marge Schott. She she owned a lot of commercial real estate in Cincinnati. And I met her when I was working in Cincinnati. This was, I guess, back in the 80s. And she owned a lot of real estate, and we were pitching to get listings and stuff on her real estate. And uh, she was tough. I don't know how smart she was. I think she was shrewd. But she had no comprehension about baseball. None. I mean, she knew nothing None. about the nuances of the game. Uh, she's the one who fired her. She, she fired her advanced scouts. And she, her explanation was, well, all they do is sit around and look at baseball games. <laughs> I mean, that, that, was her, that was her understanding of what a scout did and the answer of course marge that's what they're supposed to do so you can scout the opponent you know just completely unaware of of the basics of baseball and it's very clear to me that baseball today would never tolerate a hard shot on on so many levels uh that she could not be the the owner of a team today so baseball has changed and grown up in that regard but some of her racist comments were just just outrageous, and there, you know there's no explanation, there's no rationale for it. So uh, I, I, I guess there's some grudging admiration out there for Myron Shot. I uh, in her heart may have been in a good spot, but I'm not sure her brain was. And uh, she, the Reds barely escaped her ownership reign, and she was. Pretty good businesswoman, I guess, but uh, not a very good baseball owner. No, no, she really wasn't. But she was, she was a lot of fun for people to cover the Reds with. I will say that. You know, and another thing, Mark, that I wanted to bring up tonight was Pete Rose asking for reinstatement with Rob Manfred. Now we we talked about this last week, but in the process of the week, you know, I went on Bill Ivy of I seventy uh, actually posted an article that was written about. Rose asking for reinstatement, and I, I don't know why I did this, but for some reason I thought it necessary to go on to what people were actually writing as far as the comments, just to kind of get an idea as to what the people were thinking about Pete Rose being reinstated. And I, I got into what I would term a battle of wits with people who are unarmed over the fact that they were making comments that just were absolutely untrue. And the thing, Mark, that I, I think you know a lot of people don't understand is is that when they talk about Pete Rose, there's a lot of innuendo, there's a lot of rumor, a lot of supposition that goes on around, around what Pete did. But if you actually sat down and read 
the report that was given to Bart Giamatti. It specified he never bet on a game for the Reds to lose. And the fact is, is there, there were a lot of other things. But, Mark, the people that were, were posting comments on Facebook, they seem to think that Pete Rose bet on the Reds to lose. And that is far, there's nothing anywhere in that report that even comes close to saying that he ever bet on the Reds to lose. Don't forget, Dave, most of the people who are reading those reports weren't born when that happened. It was almost 30 years ago. And so it's not surprising that, that people don't know the intricacies of that. And I think a lot of the people that even were around at the time, they just, in fact, I heard somebody say that to a, a, a non-supporter of Pete Rose. And they said, well, he bet on baseball. And it was clarified, well, no, he never bet on the Reds to lose. And the person who was against Pete said, well, how do you know? How do you know that's true? So the supposition is that, well, he did bet on the Reds to lose, and he never did. There's no indication that he did. So in terms of what yeah, – I get back to the issue, and it was it was so amusing to me yesterday. They interviewed Gaylord Perry. Now, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Gaylord Perry, for those of you who don't know, was a pitcher back in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s who was renowned for throwing a spitball, which is illegal. You'd be thrown out of the league today for the throwing a spitball, certainly suspended for throwing. And he made a career out of that. And he was a very effective pitcher. So you could argue that his effectiveness using an illegal pitch reduced the productivity of the hitters he faced. He won games using something illegal. Now, is is that different than what Pete did? Did Pete no. have any impact on the outcome of a game? No, he didn't. But Gaylord Perry did. Not only that, Gaylord Perry wrote a book, which I read. It wasn't a very good book, but I read it about his career cheating. And he has the audacity to say, well, it's not time yet to let Pete back in. So the hypocrisy of players like that and, and hypocrisy of the league, Gaylord Perry, I think, is in the Hall of Fame. He is in the Hall of Fame, and yes. He, and he cheated, and he's in the Hall of Fame. I don't get it. And then, then to have say, well, it's too early. It's, he should wait longer. The man's 72 years old. How, how much longer are you going to wait? He's in a walker? It, it, it's just now getting ridiculous. And I'm glad Manfred, he, he made a very interesting distinction last week, I thought. He said, well, I'm going to read everything, start over, look at it from the get-go. And, you know, it is different. And this is, I'm, quote, I'm paraphrasing him now. He said it's different to be allowed back into baseball as opposed to being allowed back into Hall of Fame. Yes. And I think that's a very interesting distinction. And when you and I have said, how could you have a Hall of Fame and not have Pete freaking Rose in it? It is not a Hall of Fame without Pete Rose in it. <coughs> Pardon me. So I think he is going to take a fresh look. And I wish somebody would have some reality about this issue. The guy's been punished enough. Mark, you and I disagree on this, but I think Manfred is going to allow him back in, and I think he's going to make the announcement just before the All-Star game. Um, I think he might let him back in. I, I don't think he'll do it before the All-Star break because I think that would steal away the thunder of the All-Star game, and I don't think he'll do that. If he does do it, he'll do it, he'll do it well before the All-Star break, but uh, I don't think he'll do it at the All-Star break. See, I think that's the per this is where you and I differ. I think that is the perfect place for him to do it. And and I would say that the all of the drama and all of the the pomp and circumstance of introducing Pete Rose before the game as the honorary captain for the National League and saying he's been reinstated. And that place would go absolutely crazy. Yes, and Something else would go crazy is a bunch of the veterans uh, who are in the Hall of Fame who would scream and yell at Manfred for doing such a thing and kind of diminishing the 
impact of the All-Star Game in Cincinnati. Yet, does it make sense? Absolutely. Does it make sense for Reds fans? You bet. I'd love to see it happen. I don't think he'll do it. I would love to see it. I don't think he'll do it either. But I think it would be the perfect opportunity. And I do think he will reinstate him. And I think he will be reinstated by by the All-Star Game. But I don't think he'll do it the way I think he would. But I think it would be an outstanding. If I was his PR man, I'd say this is the way to do it. Well, I, again, you and I agree on that. But I, I think he is more worried about the rest of the Hall of Fame guys than he is you and me. Why do you think that that would be such a slap in the face to the Hall of Fame guys? Because it, it takes away from the, the luster and the exclusivity of I mean, every other player who made the All-Star team this year, they will be uh, kind of second rate behind Pete Rose. <coughs> and that's why I don't think they'll do it. He'll get Well, what's the difference between... What what is the difference between them doing it this way and when they invited him out for the World Series on the 100th anniversary team in San Francisco, and he got the largest ovation of anybody there, including the Giants players in on their own home field? Because he he, he wouldn't that wasn't being it would be absolutely front page New York Times news if Pete Rose is reinstated. It's not front page news if he attends an All Star game. Well, maybe so, but I still think that it, it. I don't think it would diminish anything as far as Pete being reinstated. Well, I think there'd be a sigh of relief. <clears throat> well, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. The issue is not whether he should or, or will. I think he will. I think it'll be after the All Star break because it would be uh, it would interfere with the the spotlight being cast on uh, the players who've made the All Star team this year. I mean, that's that's my opinion, and I'm not going to change it. I, I just don't think that he's going to do that. I wish he would. I agree with you. It would be great for Reds fans, but I don't think it's going to happen. On another vein, what do you think about the 17 letters that have been sent out to Major League players to start adhering to the speed-up rule that the commissioner has put in place and that will actually be implemented? They've only been practiced with throughout the games, throughout this month of April. And on May 1st, they're going to start calling and making sure that these pitchers are throwing the ball within 20 seconds and the batters are staying in the batter's box. What do you think about that? I think it's ludicrous. I really do. I, I think it's it's wrong-headed. And, you know, I was talking to a guy today, and we were talking about going to football games. And he reminded me that a football game today is every bit as long as a baseball game. And it has less action, more commercials, less action. And if they want to shorten a baseball game, shorten the two and a half minutes of commercials between every half inning. Oh, sacrilege! It's well, you could charge more, Dave. You could you could charge the same amount of money for a minute and a half commercial, as opposed to two, you know, for for two and a half minutes of commercials. And you probably have guys, companies willing to pay more. That knocks off 18 minutes of every game right there. So, oh, I I have no problems with that. You, you know, my my stand on this has been: if you want to speed up the game, call a strike a strike. Yeah, I, I don't agree. I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's accurate as well. But you know, if you did that, and the other thing that takes a lot of time is the number of pitching changes in a game. They take about three and, a, three and a half to four minutes per pitching change. When yes. you have five or six pitchers coming in there, that's a half hour of watching guys walk in from the bullpen and take their eight pitches. Why don't you have them do that in the bullpen? Get them up early. Yes. I mean, that's a lot of time wasted just on, on watching guys warm up. You know, one thing I've, I've often wondered, you were a pitcher. And I, I got this question in my head earlier tonight when I was doing the girls' softball game, and I watched the, the girl from the opposing team warm up tonight. And, Mark, she stood out there for almost 40 minutes throwing warm-up pitches, getting ready to pitch the game, and then came out and pitched the entire game. Now, granted, it's underhanded. Supposedly, that doesn't put as much torque on your arm as throwing overhanded. But when you're talking about starting pitchers, 
and you talk about that magical number of 100 pitches in a ball game, and that's what everybody says, you know, boy, you got to get them out of there after that. Well, do they actually take into consideration how many warm-up throws they take? Well, a warm-up throw doesn't put much stress on your arm. And, you know, <laughs> again, I, I was talking to a guy today about, about that very issue. We were talking about, if you recall, Jim Maloney pitched a no-hitter against the Cubs back in, I think it was 67. And that game is on WGN. You can find that game on YouTube. And I think he pitched 179 pitches that game. In the game, 179. He pitched a no-hitter, but he also walked 10 guys. <laughs> and yeah. that's the game Leo Cardenas hit a home run in the top of the ninth inning, and to, you know, and he got the win. But uh, pitchers back then, they, they would throw regularly 130, 140, 150 pitches because they were throwing different kinds of pitches. If you throw fastballs, and you've got a good arm. Fastball doesn't hurt your arm. It's it's the sliders. It's the it, the changeup is very very tough on an arm because you're throwing the same arm velocity, but you're holding it in a different position, which puts a lot of strain on the elbow. And these these kids when they're 15, 16 are throwing cutters. They're throwing forkballs. They're throwing changeups. That is what is causing the arm injuries. But if you're throwing straight fastballs. Uh, your arm doesn't get sore when you when you throw it. It's all the breaking balls. No, I I agree wholeheartedly with you that I, I you know I just wondered if they actually took into consideration the amount of warm up throws that somebody throws in the bullpen the, the bullpen sessions because how many times do you hear? Especially Gavin Floyd did this uh, when when they discovered that he had a ch- uh, a fracture in his elbow again. But how many times do you hear about a pitcher after a start, they go out in the bullpen on their second day or they're getting ready to warm up for their, their next start, and they can't get their arm loose? Well, I don't. again, I don't think it has anything to do with the number of pitches. I think it's the kind of pitches, and I don't think warm-ups add to or would, would save anybody any kind of arm injury because you're not putting stress on, on yourself. You know, your body sometimes reacts to the situation. If I would come in and pitch, and I was throwing well in the early innings, <clears throat> throwing 50, 60 pitches, and most of them were fastballs, I wasn't tired. But you get into a tough situation, you got two on, nobody out, you got to bear down, you're throwing all kinds of breaking balls, you're trying to get guys out, and they're taking a lot of pitches. Uh, and the stress of the situation can cause you to have a sore arm. And I think most pitchers would agree you have – it's not the number of pitches, it's it's when you make those pitches. You know, Mark, also, let's take a look at the first week as we're winding down tonight's show on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A surprise team to me, in a negative light, has been San Diego. I really thought that they would come out and start playing some good baseball, and it seems like they're taking a while to mesh as this first week kind of dwindled down into yesterday. Is there any teams out there, good or bad, that are surprising you after this first week? Hey, I'm surprised in the Central that Milwaukee got off to the start they got off, and Pittsburgh did too. They got off to a weak start, although they won today against Detroit. Um, I, I think in the Central Division, let's start there. I don't think there's any surprises. Uh, I think the Reds being 4-2, and two, I think they're lucky to be 4-2. and two. Um and, and again, the, the Central Division, I think they're going to beat each other up a lot. So we said this at the beginning of the year. If you're three, four games over 500, you can win the division in this division, in, in the Central. Now, you, you go other 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 divisions, I don't think anybody other than Detroit could run away, away and hide. I think there's a lot of parity in baseball. Uh, I think the Marlins are a surprise. The start they they're getting off to. I mean, you expected far more from them. San Diego would be a disappointment, but don't, don't forget, Dave, we're only a week into the season, and you could be zero and six and still have a reasonable chance of uh, right. De- yeah, definitely. So um, I don't think any trends have been established as yet. Not many. You know, one other thing I wanted to bring up tonight, also, Mark, was since we're on the subject of the commissioner and and what he's done. 
I think what he has decided to do, as far as not penalizing Josh Hamilton, says a lot about what he's going to be as a commissioner. I don't. I agree with the commissioner on this. I don't think he should have penalized Josh Hamilton because it was Josh Hamilton that came to them and said he needed help. Yes, this is probably the second or third time that he has done that. But you cannot penalize somebody for coming to you and asking for help. I agree with you 100%, and, and I think you, you should encourage that. And if you start punishing guys uh, for doing that, you're, you're, gonna, you're not going to have that open door or that, that willingness of a player to take a chance and come to the commissioner and say, hey, look, I'm in trouble, I need help. And I think, I think every fan in the world would respect Josh Hamilton for what he did. He, he came and said it, he asked for help. And for Manfred to, you know, hit him across the head with a two-by-four for doing that, I think would have been the wrong message to the union and to, to players in general. But I, I don't think the fans would have, would have appreciated that either. No, I agree. And I think he did the right thing. I think it does send a message to other players that may have the same problem. And, you know, we made fun of baseball back in the 80s with the Steve Howe incidents, where it was 7, 8, 9, 10. Hamilton's not to that point yet. I think in this situation where, yes, he's had relapses in the past, but, Mark, this one, evidently, for all of, from what I read from all the reports, this was a big, big relapse. And from what I understand, the Angels have really even turned their back on him. They're they're trying secretly through the back channels to find some takers to see if anybody would pick him up in a trade. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the great tragedies in the history of baseball is Josh Hamilton. That guy has as much talent as anybody I've ever seen. If you see pictures on YouTube of him when he was in high school, my Lord, you know what an unbelievable talent this guy had. And it's clearly been withered away by his drug use and alcohol use. But there, there's a story there, and, and, and I hope it has a happy ending. But uh, it, it doesn't appear that it's going to be so. He, he's, he's, he's got problems. He's got demons that we can't recognize. And I, I'm glad Manfred didn't you know, drop the bomb on him because uh, if anybody needs help right now, it's Josh Hamilton. Mark, finally on tonight's show, give us an update on the search for Dylan Michael. Well, it's it's getting fun, David. We, this past weekend we were at the field where we're going to have the tryouts, and there was uh, Action Sports Center in Dayton at uh, 1303 Gateway Road. Uh, th that's where we're having our May 2nd and 3rd tryouts, and, and we were there this past weekend. Big crowd, lots of people there. Uh, we had a lot of fun meeting fans, and, and people seemed very interested in, the, in what we're doing, and uh, we're excited about it. We're looking forward to finding, hopefully, at least uh, one of our Dylan Michaels here in the Dayton area. But uh, we're going to be in a town near you. We're going to be all over the country doing this, maybe as many as 20 cities. So uh, we're very excited about it. Now, when are the times on the 2nd and 3rd of May? Uh, we start at 9 a.m. There will be two sessions each day. We go from 9 to 12 and then 1 to 4, I believe, are the sessions. But if you have... Any questions specifically, go to lastatbatthemovie.com, and uh, I think all the questions are answered there. And uh, we're very excited about the people who have been making donations to our project, and uh, we, we can't wait to get started making the movie. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. The Indians this week, Mark, they're off tonight, as I said. They're going to be playing at home tomorrow and Wednesday afternoon against the Chicago White Sox, and then they're off Thursday and they play at Minnesota on Friday, Saturday afternoon, and then Sunday afternoon. As far as the Reds are concerned, what do they have coming up? Well, they have three games this week in Chicago, three night games, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Then they go to St. Louis over the weekend for a rematch with the Cardinals uh, in St. Louis. And the Cardinals have had the Reds' number for a number of years, so hopefully the Reds will be able to turn it around this, this weekend in St. Louis. Well, that'll be a Sunday night game, too. That's on ESPN Sunday night. That's right. So that'll, that's what's happening with the Reds and the Indians. And, Mark, we'll talk to you again next week on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Have a good one, Dave. You too. Don't forget, tomorrow afternoon we'll be back on the air on Ultimate Sports Talk as we bring you the Norway girls taking on the Waynedale girls. That will be over in Creston, Ohio. Tomorrow afternoon we'll be on the air at 4.50. 
with the pregame, and the first pitch will be at 5 o'clock. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. We hope you will join us then. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer for tonight's show, and also our thanks going out to everyone else. Thanks for listening. The Until next week, goodbye. Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke.